The Global North's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the Global South. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow the one recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Nectar Corridor, a podcast where we explore the incredible world of mezcal, the most emblematic and diverse spirit of Mexico. I'm your host, Nikki Nakazawa. Today, we're going to take a look at two mezcal-oriented maps, one of the diversity of magueyes and mezcal traditions throughout Mexico, and the other of the productive regions of Oaxaca and its local magueyes. Jorge Larsen is the coordinator of planning for the use of biodiversity of Conavio, the National Commission for the Knowledge and Use of Biodiversity. And he was also the one who coordinated the group of experts behind the famous map of mezcales y diversidad. Ryan Toll's map proposes a classification of the mezcal regions of the state of Oaxaca with its corresponding regional nomenclature of magueyes compiled through empirical research. Both perspectives help us develop a better understanding of the great wealth of magueyes used in the production of mezcal and the incredible diversity of landscapes and traditions in Oaxaca and the rest of the country. We invite you to follow along with the maps in order to better understand the conversations. Links can be found in the show notes. First, we speak with Jorge, who took time from his busy schedule to speak to us from his home in Mexico City. This podcast was originally recorded in Spanish. Our conversation with Jorge is interpreted by Michael Zarkesh. My name is Jorge Larson. After graduating from the National Autonomous University of Mexico, I started working for Canabio, which is an institution dedicated to the expansion and diffusion of knowledge about biodiversity, plant conservation, and sustainability of biological resources. When Jorge obtained a grant from the MacArthur Foundation in 1998, he shifted his focus to denominations of origin and their uses in the management and conservation of biological resources. And that's how he eventually came to work with Magueyes Mezcaleros. Within this massive universe of species, there are some that aren't used by farmers or industries or scientists and are essentially unknown in the grand scheme of things. And there are many species that, for example, don't have an indigenous name. And when something doesn't have a name, it is not considered a part of culture or society. So from the beginning, I was interested in focusing on the biological resources that we use. And I started with maguez because they are emblematic of the Mexican landscape and culture. And there is a huge diversity. Many species are unique to Mexico. And because in 1994, the appellation of origin for mezcal had just been declared, there was a lot of movement happening around this topic. 
And that Conabio, we realized that we did not have an updated list of the various maguey species in Mexico. So Conabio set forth to identify and categorize all magueys. This was led by Dr. Abasai Garcia Mendoza in the late 90s. And afterwards, we approached him with the idea of conducting additional research on magueys that were used for mezcal. This research was later used to create the map of mezcals and diversity. The main purpose of the map was to synthesize all the available information and present it in an approachable manner. Scientific illustrations play a really important role in this. When you see an illustration, you know it's an approximation or a quote-unquote ideal representation. But if you were to see a photograph instead, you are more likely to think that it is an exact and singular representation. So, for example, in a species such as agave cupriata or agave potatorum, there is a noticeable distinction between small and large tobalamagues. So illustrating these species makes it easier to transmit these concepts in a very clear way. This is an idealization. It is not the reality because in reality, it is much more diverse. So another element was to know your target audience. After the map was created, for the first two years, it was distributed free of charge to local mezcal producers before moving on to market and consumer distribution. This was a purposeful move in order to help producers expand their endeavors and marketability. There was a separate but parallel movement underway in terms of reworking the labels on the mezcal bottles. There was a new effort to include the maestro mezcalero, the alcohol content, the wood that was used, the maguey species, etc. And this came from the efforts of Cornelio Perez, who collaborated on the map. So the timing of the distribution of the map was perfect because it lined up with the effort to make the hard work of the producer more visible on the labels. The map became a tool for producers and they began to notice the regional differences of maguey species. It was beautiful to see them recognize how unique and special their own maguey's were and I think it helped elevate the craft of mezcal production. The denomination of origin for mezcal was legally established in 1994 and the first edition of the Conabio map was published in 2005, more than 10 years later. When we decided to create this map, we knew we would need folks with a lot of different backgrounds. So we hired taxonomist Dr. Abasai Mendoza, maguey ecologist Dr. Luis Eguiarte, who is also a bat specialist, and farm management expert Kathy Ilsley, who has since passed away. And on the cultural side, we asked Cornelio Perez to support us. And on the map, we made sure to add a section that would help producers with land management as well. I asked Jorge what measures producers have taken, or what measures he thinks they should take in order to protect the identity of traditional beverages in the market. I think that the main form of resistance is to just keep producing. As long as the product continues to be sold, it cannot disappear. That being said, there needs to be changes at the top in order for the product to thrive. Right now, we still see producers being paid poorly, products being undersold, and independent brands being bulldozed by commercial sellers. So the first form of resistance is to keep producing. Another important aspect is the diversification of maguey's. This is a way to stay off the quote-unquote tequila path. 
In the world of mezcal, there is an incredible amount of diversity in the maguez, which makes mezcal so special. I think that a diversified landscape and proper resource management goes a long way for producers to further develop their product. There has really been a great network forming for those working with mezcalero maguez. We have at least 50 or 60 scientists and independent mezcal producers collaborating to elevate and improve their work. Networks like the one that Jorge mentions are vital to the continued prosperity of mezcal traditions and production. But there are still challenges that could impact the future of mezcal. Los magueyes que tú ves ahí y dices, ah, esos son silvestres. No son silvestres. When you look at a maguey out in nature, you think to yourself, oh, that's some wild-grown maguey. But they're really not wild-grown. They've been there for hundreds, if not thousands of years, because before mezcal, these plants were valued for their sugar and were consumed. And yes, the way that we plant, grow, and harvest maguey has changed throughout the decades, but there is a vital piece of information that we cannot forget. Given that the maguey plant has numerous species, each plant has a specific way of growing. You need to treat each plant individually and know where it grows best and how to care for it, because if you don't, you could eventually lose the species altogether. This purposeful effort to diversify and manage land works well to combat yet another threat to the future of maguez, which is the influx of weevils and other pests that can decimate a plant. So it's all about keeping a balance between plant inventory and mezcal production, understanding what is needed in order to sustainably produce for many years to come. Speaking with Jorge about the diversity and management of magueyes made me curious about the denomination of origin for mezcal and how it compared to other denominations of origin that have been around for much longer. Si tú analizas las denominaciones de origen en Europa, por un lado es un territorio más... If you look at the appellations of origin in Europe, it's a completely different playing field. For one, it has been organized and strictly categorized for a relatively long time. There are hundreds of appellations of wine at this point. But for Mexico, the main difference is that the word mezcal is a generic name, and an appellation of origin can't be generic. It has to be specific. And in my opinion, Mexico should have at least 150 different appellations of origin for mezcal, but this feels like an unattainable goal given how slowly certification has moved here. I asked Jorge if there are any independent initiatives to start organizing smaller geographic indications. I believe that there are initiatives underway, but there's a long road ahead. The important thing is that many have come to understand and support these initiatives, which is a big first step. I think that there needs to be more autonomy in the field as well. Producers should have their own systems to become certified because at the moment it is extremely costly to do so. There's often a lack of communication between independent mezcal producers and markets, universities, government institutions, etc. I asked Jorge how he thinks we can bridge the gap in order to allow for a more free-flowing exchange of ideas and information between all parties. I think that networks like the one I previously mentioned are a great step forward because it consists of producers and researchers alike. But I think there should be room for consumers and folks from the world of gastronomy as well, because it could allow for even more collaboration and exchange of ideas and resources. Another issue is resistance from the outside, meaning that there are folks out there undermining and adulterating the product on a large scale. And sometimes the best thing to do is keep focusing on your craft, even if it's on the sidelines. 
it can be really hard to make lasting change at the highest levels. So producers work in their own ways to survive in the market until larger forces come to realize the importance of traditional mezcal production. Mescaleros need to create their own spaces in order to thrive. Jorge knows that change takes time, so he's made a lasting commitment to contribute his knowledge and resources with local communities to support and protect their continued production of mezcal. So now we're going to switch from a more institutional perspective to that of a mezcal enthusiast. Ryan Toll is a mezcal importer and a member of the civic association Maestros de Mezcal. His travels around Oaxaca and frequent collaboration with mezcaleros inspired him to develop another increasingly well-known map in the mezcal world. My name is Ryan Toll. I'm originally from Nevada City, California. I've been living in Mexico for the better part of like 10, 11 years or so now. Most of that here in Oaxaca. I was spine and vines and importation and distribution company that imports mezcal and agave spirits um, from Mexico. And I also work with this civil association. It's like a nonprofit organization here in Mexico called Maestros del Mezcal that was formed by Abel Alcantara. There's not like a super formal role, but there's a number of people that all help in different ways. So how was it that you started to get involved in mezcal and become involved in Maestros del Mezcal? So just living here in Oaxaca, I think I'd lived here for a number of years and I hadn't really quite gotten into mezcal. Maybe it started being seen in certain restaurants, like menus with a little more variety. And that kind of interested me when I, when I started seeing, you know, a little bit more diversity I went to a little mezcaleria called Mezcalerita, um, which is now quite a bit bigger, right in uh, Alcala, in Oaxaca. And back then it was just a little one-room mezcaleria. It was like three meters long by like a meter and a half. It was tiny. I tried a few different mezcales, and they were just completely mind-blowing, like flavors that I'd never experienced before. And then I ended up asking them if I could kind of work there slash volunteer there to try to learn more. And I think maybe like a month or two later, I, I met Abel and you know, we just started chatting and he just invite, invited me to uh, an encuentro in Minas, in Santa Catarina, Minas. Uh, like, I think it was the next day. And I went to that and there was producers from Minas, including um, Lalo, Eduardo Angeles, a bunch of other people, and, other, and producers from other parts of Oaxaca. This all happened around 2010, when there was already a movement around organizing producers beyond the Mezcal Regulatory Council, otherwise known as the CRM. But let's step back a little bit to talk about how Abel came to found the civic association Maestros de Mezcal. In the 1980s, Abel worked with Semanart, the Secretariat of Environment and Natural Resources in Guerrero. He always valued the importance of community organization to support producers and farmers. Abel saw how mezcal was becoming more commercial, and that's when he started organizing mezcal producers to help them create a stronger political voice and gain more access to grants and different types of government funding. 
how do you start learning about um, different mezcal producing regions? Like what happens then after this first encuentro and meeting Abel? So yeah, I just started going with them to a number of different regions in Oaxaca where there were similar meetings being held. I think he had already kind of been doing this maybe for a year or two before I met him. So he already had, you know, some contacts in different regions of Oaxaca. But yeah, I was, I was able to accompany him. And that's kind of when I really started to really understand like the crazy diversity that exists in Oaxaca with the, with the production styles, with the types of agave. I really doubt that there's any other part in the world where there are so many tiny little distilleries spread throughout the countryside. As you know, Oaxaca is super geographically diverse and like very complex. There's a lot of mountains and valleys and there's always like somewhere, somewhere new to kind of explore. So you have created this map of mezcal producing regions of Oaxaca in which you're dividing the state up into 16 different regions. At what point did you feel comfortable to start making these categories and and how did you come to establish them? And the first time I kind of tried to make just some little map, we did a an event in the uh, near Santo Domingo where people brought live agave from from their respective regions. It was just cool for for Oaxacans who maybe have, have never gone out into these regions to be able to actually see these agave and see like the agave that their mezcal is coming from. And I remember, I think the night before we were we were doing this event, I was like asking everyone, like, hey, let's make a little, just like a little list of kind of what species of agave are in each of your regions and maybe like the most common, common names. And that's kind of where that started and then just went from there. And now we're going to go through the 16 regions of Ryan's map one by one. You can look at the map on maestrosamezcal.com or you can simply pull up a map of Oaxaca and follow along, forming a U-shape around the valleys. So what are the regions, and what are some of the differences between them? We'll start with the Mixteca Alta, which is closer to Oaxaca, um, to Nochislan. And then there's Mixteca Baja, which is closer to Puebla, Guerrero, and goes down a little bit more towards the coast. The Mixteca Alta, there's a lot of mezcal producers here. It might be the the region in Oaxaca with the most mezcal producers, which is curious because it's really underrepresented in the commercial market, both in Mexico and outside of Mexico. So in in the Mixteca Alta, they're usually distilling in a hybrid system of like, it's, you know, the typical clay pot, like the Filipino style stills with one pot on bottom, one pot on top. But in most towns, they have substituted the bottom pot for either a stainless steel pot or an aluminum pot or like a steel drum just because they last a lot longer, you know. And it's pretty isolated, so for them to be breaking the, the bottom olla and having to go all the way to, to Oaxaca all the time, it's just not a... It's a lot easier if you're using a metal on the bottom. The mezcal is typically smokier, full body, like doesn't have as much of like pretty floral notes as some other regions in Oaxaca. You can get some funkier tastes. There's a couple towns that make mezcal that really tastes like it could be from like Jalisco. These like super fermented lactic acidic notes. 
Hayekatlan. That is, I think, technically in Etla. It's a little just north of Oaxaca. It's kind of an island in itself. There's not really any other mezcal producing regions around there. It's a valley that you go into, and they ferment in clay pots, or a lot of them do, which is not not super common. And they also have some linguistic like oddities. So they call the papalome, they call it pasmo there, which is actually the Mixtec word for for this agave. And you got Toto Machapan, which is kind of between the Mixteca and Sola de Vega. And they also ferment in clay pots, in distilling clay pots. There's an angustifolia there called Penca Verde, I believe, and Tobala or, or Papalome. Those are their main, main agave. But they do have a distinct kind of mineral, like tobacco flavor that's quite different from most mezcal in Sola de Vega. It, because of the different styles of production, you know, and the limited types of agave and this like special taste it has, it kind of deserved to be its own, its own little region. And it is kind of in a little valley, um, isolated from other mezcal producing areas. And then Sola de Vega uh, is a pretty large area, like going from Huchatengo on your way to the coast to Puerto Escondido, and then like all the way up close to Simatlan. In my opinion, like often the agave takes like backseat to that flavor. It's like a heavy-handed terroir. There's there's something else going on there. Maybe it's the water, the distillation, and the clay pots, or I'm not sure the yeasts. But Sola de Vega has a pretty identifiable flavor to it. And then going over to Ejutla. So this is kind of next to Sola de Vega on the other side of a mountain and kind of between Sola de Vega and Miahuatlan. And Nehutla, they're, they're distilling with the refrescadera. And usually it has the plates in it, so the plates in the top part of the still. And generally, they're having water constantly pouring on that, making it like super efficient, causing a lot of reflux. And the, the mezcal comes out of the still at a pretty high proof, usually, you know, like 60, 65%. It's definitely more fertile than like Miahuatlan. There's more water there. It's a different type of soil. You can tell it's like this red, red earth. It just looks more fertile, less arid. It's not like super desert. So kind of on the other side of the freeway that goes from Oaxaca to, to Miahuatlan. Uh, but I have it divided up here into another region, which I call the Altos Valles. So in this side, they're often not using the refrescadera. They're using like a double distillation. It's just a, it's a different, it's a different style of mezcal. There's more, so there's more tepextate there. Uh, maybe there's more like wild quiches. It's a little more arid and a little higher elevation. Certain parts of it, there's, there's a lot of tepextate. And parts, so parts of that region are actually in like the district of Miahuatlan. There's like this, yeah, there's a taste. For me, it's kind of a pineapple thing. It doesn't always come through, but when it does, you know that, it, you know that it's from. And you're not getting that on the other side on the, in the Altos Valles region. Then you get Miahuatlan. So this is Nikki, where you do a lot of work. 
What do you think about the mezcales of Miahuatlán? Well, you know, they're my favorite. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that um, Miahuatlán is a region which has a tremendous diversity of agave in that are used in the production of mezcal. And I think that the the water, whether it's the water, the plants, the the style, there's something special about the mezcales. And they, there's a particular flavor. And I think that drinking the amount of mezcal that we do, you can open up a bottle of something from Mewatlan and kind of identify it immediately just from smelling it pretty much. I would say it's like a, a mineral, a minerality, like a, a wet earth. I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think those are both pretty good descriptors. Also, just like really a lot of like pretty like floral and like fruit notes. It's like a very highly drinkable mezcal. And then if you so if you keep going down the road, you'll eventually get to uh, Soquitlan. I guess you could call their mezcal kind of like something between Miahuatlan and like Tlacolula in terms of flavor. You know, they're I think they're distilling twice in copper, a lot of good jabalí from that area. It's also quite arid and, you know, there's a lot of cacti and it looks, yeah, like more like a desert. But also I think in Oaxaca, like this is, all these areas are technically called like Selva Baja because they do get a lot of rainfall during certain times of the year. So it's different than like a desert in northern Mexico where there's very little rain. So there's a lot of greenery and like mesquite trees. And, but then you get into some of the smaller towns, more in the Chontal Alta region. And they have some really interesting agave species. There's like Pelón Verde, Chuparosa, different types of angustifolias and rodacantas. I've had a few people tell me that they think that Espadín is probably from from somewhere in the Chontal region. Because as some of the listeners might know, like Espadín wasn't widely spread throughout Oaxaca before. I think in the 80s, there's a government program that really brought a lot of Espadín to all these different regions of Oaxaca where originally it didn't exist. And then going up a bit, we have, so... Divided Tlacolula into two different regions. So you have West Tlacolula, which is like Matatlan, Tlacolula, uh, San Baltasar, Chichicapan, San Dionisio. So th- those towns are all kind of culturally similar. They're, they're Zapotec. Most of the, them still speak Zapotec. And yeah, it's it's ge- geographically pretty similar. It's kind of, you know, there's, there's Karwinskis, there's a lot of Espadín. There's a little bit of tepixtate. There's some Americanas and whatnot. But they do kind of have a flavor, I would say, that ties them ties them together. And then the east Tlacolula would be like San Luis del Rio. It's a little more mountainous, a little colder. Also Zapotec-speaking areas. They're also using usually you know, double distillation in copper pot stills. Um, but I don't know, I think there's, there's a kind of a different taste. And then above there you have the Sierra Juarez. So there's not a whole lot of towns that make mezcal up there. I mean, there's uh, Yalala. They're distilling in clay pots and mostly Espadín, Tobala, and maybe an Americana variety or two. And then kind of within this region or, you know, going up the freeway, to Tlawi, to the Mije region. There's a small area where they're making mezcal and double distillation in copper. 
they're Mije, they're, they're Mije people that speak Mije. It's on the these really steep like river canyon walls. It's like arid, but you know there's banana trees and like some little coffee here and there. And the mezcal there also just has a real, very, very different, distinct flavor. Uh, it's like unlike anything. I think it deserves, you know, because of the style of production, because of the culture, it deserves its own region. And then last but not least, we have Santa Catarina Minas, kind of sandwich right next to La Colula and Ejutla. It's right next to Ocotlan, quite close to Oaxaca. And they're really well known for, for distilling in clay pots, like pretty strictly conforming to this and using both the bottom and the pot clay. And I think there might be a couple of palenques now that make some copper mezcal there, but it's like very frowned upon. The community is like super tight knit and they all kind of abide by certain traditions and they really take pride in like maintaining these traditions of mezcal minero. And they also have some curious like linguistic things. So like what m people next door might call tobasiche, they call it largo a type of Karwinski. They'll call quiche, when they call quiche, something quiche or quiche, it's a, it's a roda canta, as opposed to where it would usually be a, a Karwinski in most other regions. The regions on the map could be broken down into even smaller micro-regions, and further research needs to be done. But this breakdown gives us a taste of truly how bioculturally diverse Oaxaca is. And what's important about producing uh, research or information or classifying different regions? Like, why do we care about defining the flavors of different communities or producers or regions? So I kind of look at it through like the designation of or the ge geographical designations or the DOs. You can imagine a future in Oaxaca with no regulation where they just bulldoze all these areas and plant espadín. Or, you know, they're even starting to bring agave from Oaxaca to Puebla, agave from Oaxaca to uh, Jalisco, to the United States. You know, humans, I guess, have been bringing agave all over the Americas for a long time. So it's kind of, I guess, a natural thing. But as it is now, the agave that's traditionally grown in a lot of these regions, and it's part of the landscape and the, you know, the, the biodiversity and the whole ecology of the area. And that ties into the, you know, the mezcal and the flavor. So, you know, maybe, for example, in Minas, they could decide they make their own kind of designation of origin or their own rules stating, you know, you can only use these agave in this region and it has to be from here or here and it has to be called this. So one problem, for example, right now in the Mixteca Alta, it's a lesser known region because they have different words for some agaves that are similar to ones in Valle. So like the Orno is similar to an Arroqueño in the way it looks, at least. So often now when you go to the Mixteca in these towns, they'll be like, oh, this is Arroqueño, this is Arroqueño, this is Tobala, this is um, Jabalí, where they would, you know, generally, traditionally, they'd be calling it Papalometl, they'd be calling it Cuche, they'd be calling it Orno. And for convenience or because of, you know, pressures from the market, they're losing the actual terminology of, of the agave of that region. And you can see how this could become like very problematic on a larger scale throughout 
Oaxaca and Mexico. The preservation of local nomenclature is super important to the preservation of La Cultura del Mezcal. And Ryan's map has been a really helpful educational tool to get people to understand that the names for what are seemingly the same species or varietal change from community to community. So next time you're shopping for a bottle of mezcal, you can see the common name of the maguey on the label and get a better sense of where it may be from and how it'll taste. Ryan's map is available to order at maestrosandmezcal at gmail.com. He offers some events where people can do tastings while following along the regional map. Thanks so much to Jorge and Ryan for speaking to us and to our voice actor, Michael. Saludos desde las tierras del mezcal y hasta la próxima. The Nectar Corridor is part of the Whetstone Radio Collective. Thank you to the Nectar Corridor team, producer Jackie Nowak, associate producer Rosina Castillo, editors Andres Jimenez and Max Kotelchuk, and researcher Olivia Mayeda. English translations are by Jackie Nowak, with editorial help from Carlin Crosby and Emily Vizzo. Cover art by Alex Bowman. Thanks to Las Nortenitas de Oro for the use of our theme song, Jinetes en el Cielo. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective head of podcast Celine Glazier, sound engineer Max Kotelchuk, associate producer Quentin LeBeau, production assistant and Melissa Utinko, and sound intern Simon Lavender. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more video podcast content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone Media at whetstonemedia.com. The Nectar Corridor is originally produced and recorded in Spanish. If you'd like to listen to the original interview, you can search for El Corredor del Nectar wherever you get your podcasts.